I'm Jess Zeno, and this is the Mothers of Reinvention. On each episode of this weekly podcast, I sit down with rebel women who share their never-before-heard-life stories about that pivotal moment where they reinvented themselves and set their course to success. Today's guest has co-written 11 books, including five New York Times bestsellers, but it wasn't until now that she's writing the first book under her own name. She was the chief content officer of Goop and co-hosted the Goop podcast and Goop Lab on Netflix. She is a writer and editor living in Los Angeles with her husband and two sons, and it's important to mention that she's especially proud to be a Montanan. Please welcome to the show the always chic, the always smart Elise Lunen. <laughs> Hello, Elise. <laughs> Hi, I'm blushing, <laughs> but thank you. Thanks for having me. I want to kick this off and get right to the heart of the matter, which is this Montanan pride. <laughs> Tell me more well, it, about your beginnings in Montana. Yeah. Well, first of all, there are not very many of us. So when I meet people, there's a pretty good chance who know someone in Montana or maybe are from Montana, assuming they're from the Western half of the state, there's a pretty good chance that like we're only, we're, we could be related. It's that small. Um, but yeah, my parents moved there sort of on a whim. My dad is South African. My mom is from Iowa originally. They met at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota and almost picked a place to move out of a hat. Someone had driven through Missoula and thought that they would like it. My dad had been in the cavalry in South Africa as a medic and really wanted to have horses and had taken up uh, skiing. And so it sort of ticked all these boxes. And so they, he had these ranch fantasy. I mean, he was delusional, um, but they, they bought this piece of property where we did have horses and chickens for a minute and um, moved to Montana. And, and that's where I spent, you know, until I went to boarding school, that's where I spent my whole existence. Did you... And I don't know why I left. Did you feel as though it was <laughs> idyllic? Were you a were you a mountain person? Were you a cowgirl? Like, how do you describe yeah. characteristically a Montanan? That's funny. I mean, I had major rodeo queen fantasies, like being a barrel racing queen. Um, I grew up writing English, so that wasn't. And I felt a little. I felt even though I'm from Montana, it's so strange. Like Texans have no issue with this, but I felt awkward about, I didn't buy board. I didn't buy cowboy boots until I left the state. And then I felt completely comfortable wearing them. But when I was in Montana, it felt um, like too much of a put on, which is strange because it's actually like my identity. And there are a lot of people who dress up as cowgirls who, who cannot profess to be one. So um, yeah, I mean, it was a idyllic, you know, I, I recognize that as a child, but of course, these are things that we only really recognize when we no longer have access to them. And, you know, the thing that's hard about Montana is that it's landlocked and not a travel hub. And, and now it's so much easier. There are direct flights to Los Angeles, et cetera. But growing up, it was like a huge, I mean, we primarily would road trip because it was so hard to get in and out of the state. Um, 
And so I was frustrated by that. Like I wanted a big city existence and I certainly got that when I moved to New York and then was like, wait, I need to go back to Montana and live in the woods and have my own mountain and a horse. And I mean, I didn't really have a mountain, but there was a mountain across the dirt road that I laid claim to. So now where you live in Los Angeles, are you by a canyon at all? Do you still ride? You had mentioned English before. And for those that don't know, it's a, it's a style of horseback riding. Uh, do you still ride horses? I do. So I took a break. I had, um, it's a long story, but I was, would do these endurance rides with my dad when I was young, these 50 mile endurance rides. And, um, my horse got hurt in sort of a freak accident. He was fine, but it was very, um, it was very hard for me. Like I thought, I mean, I'm like sort of a horse whisperer. We could talk, et cetera. And, um, he, it's so funny. He's been on my mind for the last few days intensively. And, um, and I took a break from horseback riding. And then a couple of years ago, a friend of mine from Texas, um, was like, come and come to this ranch with us near Missoula. And I had no, I'd never heard of it. I had no idea what she was talking about. And it's this like by word, private, uh, family owned historical guest ranch. It's essentially just like these, it's very rustic, small cabins, no amenities, and you just ride. And so I started going two summers ago with my family and friends and have completely fallen back in love. And that's Western writing. So, and now I, I full on, not only do I have boots, but my kids have boots. My husband has boots. Um, like I just got a shipment of stuff from Wrangler. Like we are so all in on, um, Western. I still wear a helmet though. So I, I kind of ruined my vibe, but, um, but yeah, the fringed Western shirts from rock Mount. Like I'm going like fully <laughs> barrel queen. Barrel racing what is queen. a barrel? What's barrel racing? So barrel racing is, um, it's a radio event. And so it's, it's a comp it's competitive. And essentially it's these race, these barrels set out across sort of, I don't know if you've ever been to a rodeo and then, um, roping, you know, sort of these, these, these horses that can cut incredible curves, turns. And so they run around the barrel, um, and they do the courses and there, it's just insane athleticism from these horses like hewing, you know, essentially running in a circle. Um, and the women are incredible. They're just like full rodeo queens who can ride. And um, yeah, no, it's, it's, a, it's, a it's a thing. In this, in this <laughs> subgenre. <laughs> exactly. It's a, it's, it need, people need to be more aware of, of this culture. Cause it's, it's, it's pretty it's cool. Great, I um I was born and raised in New York and have lived only in New York and Los Angeles for my life. And so what you're saying is uh, dare I say aspirational, I guess, or inspirational. Yes. <laughs> yes. But to understand Very... American culture and how people have such reverence for their upbringing and pride for their home place. Yes. And for the land and, and conservation of land and water, it's a very, it's like, a, it is a really beautiful subculture, um, in America. And it's, it's something that everyone should try to experience. So from that, I'm so curious because you were, 
you know, you're saying that you were landlocked and experiencing this one um, way of living. How does someone of your upbringing end up writing and editing so much about global culture in the world? It really, you are the arbiter and influencer of like, what's cool with global culture? How, how did that transition so and reinvention happen? Well, I think, I think part of it comes from being an outsider in many ways and growing up in a pretty isolated way. Um, Missoula, where I grew up as a college town and there's some great culture and um, it's not, you know, it's not like I grew up, you know, I grew up with access to like all the books I could read and um, no cable TV didn't reach up our road. But um, I think, you know, I, I was just obsessed with magazines like interview magazine w um vogue to some extent but really w and and interview interestingly and i i was just sort of obsessed with those worlds and what it would be like to enter into them and i tried to make my own clothes like i was just very like i couldn't there was no access i sound so um we used to walk five miles, but like we had a Benetton in town, which was amazing. Benetton rules Benetton for rules. those who are not old enough, but you know, I had all the tube socks and the leggings Same. and the United School of Benetton, et cetera. No gap. Um, we would drive to Spokane, Washington or Seattle to do back to school shopping. And, um, and so I just was like, I, I had saw the sparkle of that type of culture without really fully being able to participate in it in a way that like very much captured my imagination. And then when I got to New York after college and got my first magazine job, it was also kind of interesting because it's going to, it's visiting Oz, you know, it's like going behind the curtain and you're like, oh, this is, this is penetrable and this is fantasy. And so much of this is about creating these worlds of aspiration that very few people actually like live in and the people who you see on the pages are flawed and human. And that was a very, that was just very, very interesting to me. It's like that Michelle Obama quote, I mean, different level, but Michelle talking about sort of like going to G summits and meeting every world leader and um, sort of sitting at the table with, with everyone we can imagine and then being like, you know what, like, they're not that smart. Um, and so I think actually engaging with a culture that I had grown up revering and being like, oh, I can, this is a construct, like anyone can participate in this. I think that's why, um, that's why I'm so, I didn't want to join it. I just wanted to observe mm. it. Yeah, sense? it does make sense. What's interesting that you say W and Interview Magazine was because they were so similar in that they were the fringe of New York culture, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. um, you know, I love that while you were loving these fashion magazines, it really was this almost fringe culture where people were creating themselves. And from that, um, you know, making their voice in pop culture, like pop culture was so beautiful and fun in the 80s and the 90s and so impactful. Yeah. I would imagine, I don't want to assume, but I would imagine we're the, probably in the same age range if you're um, saying Benetton was an influence. I'm 41. Okay, so I'm 44. I'm a little older than you are. Okay. But um, 
with Benetton, now that you mentioned that, also Esprit, I want to give a shout out to Esprit. Yes, Esprit, big Right, time. but like Benetton, now that I'm thinking about it, now that you mentioned it, was the first brand that really was promoting some type of diversity or it's cool to be oh, not yeah. the same. It was, it was a social impact yes. brand. I was just actually talking about this with my friend Richard. Christensen, who, when he was uh, young, went to that. I didn't realize that Benetton actually had a school in the countryside where you had to apply and people from all over the world, like these global creative youth under 25 would come together and do this school for a year. And part of it was like sort of a brain trust for, for Benetton, but it was like, you know, he was, and then he went on to edit colors. I don't know if you remember that Benetton magazine, but it was like, they were like, going into prisons, they were, they were doing sort of social justice reporting and equity work in the eighties. Um, was Benetton and like the pe- people would throw bricks through the windows of the stores. And, huh. Yeah. And it was completely an inclusive, every ad campaign, you know, it was the United Colors of Benetton. It was so actually ahead of its time. Was Benetton the parent company or was there a parent company to Benetton? It was it. No, I think it was the parent company and it still exists, but in a much, in a much smaller scale, but it was, it was everything. I know. I, when I travel and if you travel abroad, I find that there are the stores still in Paris or Italy or Switzerland or whatever, yeah. um, that, but they're small and they're usually in airports. <laughs> so that's what the yeah. brand. Interesting. I haven't seen one in a yeah, while, but they yeah. They do major collaborations. The last one I saw, they were doing like a Snoopy collaboration. Um what was your favorite Benetton piece? I had this purple, it was a United School of Benetton. So it was a purple t-shirt with like the full school printed on it. I don't know what school. And then I had the sort of like banded purple. I would wear like, I, I had like a few special outfits. Like I had this one Esprit outfit too, that was like green with blue purple polka dots. And so it was like the head to toe Purple leggings, purple tube socks, scrunchie. It was the whole and, thing. And people can't see you right now, <laughs> but are you? you wearing a purple shirt right now? <laughs> no, it's a navy, navy blue. blue. <laughs> it's navy blue, but almost. Yeah. My favorite piece was, oh God, did I love it so much. It was a green, Kelly green and white polo shirt, oversized. Mm-hmm. It was thick cotton and had a cotton green collar that you would pop and it was striped Mm. kelly green white kelly green white and then the front had a patch on it that said benetton in that like iconic i remember yes the best logo i mean it's such a good it was so amazing it was amazing so amazing so uh, i i outside of Benetton and our shared love for it. So you're in Montana, you're, you know, inspired by pop culture, you move into this space of, let's say, you move straight into this incredible world of academia at Yale. Um, Mm -hmm. What? And you said, you know, earlier on, you were reading books. I know from just researching your career that you're so impacted by books. Was reading and writing something that you wanted to do early on? Were you cognizant that that's where you wanted to land as a career? Yeah. And I think that I felt self-conscious, which is why I've ghostwritten so many books about calling myself a writer. For whatever reason, I've always had 
a lot of anxiety about, you know, I was an English and arts, fine arts major at Yale. And I was like, I'm not an artist. I'm really clear about that. Like, I would never presume to call myself an artist. And so I have like a block about both of those things, I think. Um, being a writer, I'm not an artist. I'll just continue to say that. But um, for a long time, I would, you know, called myself more of an editor. Like I, to me, that felt safer, even though I did a fair amount of writing and I've always really loved writing. And it's funny, my agent who has, I've had since I was a baby, you know, like 24, started doing all this ghost writing over the years. She's been like, when are you going to, like, why are you doing this? And like, when are you going to write your own book? Like, well, I don't have a book in me. And she's like, that's clearly not true. But it took me until now, and I'm I'm happy that I waited, but it's taken me until now to feel comfortable stepping into that, stepping in and putting my name on the front of a book. In part, I think because I grew up with such reverence for writers and my brother's a book editor. My mom's an avid reader as well. And to me, it was sort of like the ultimate. And to ask someone, strangely, to spend that many hours with you and with your thoughts is a big ask. And so, um, I don't know. It, it just took me, it just took me a while to dare to presume. It's, it's, I know that sounds so silly, but... Um, May I compliment you? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> May I have your consent to compliment you? <laughs> um, <laughs> I was you know, reading about you and the names were listed of these 11 and 12 people that you've written these like massive books for. And I read that, read the list and I assumed who you were writing for. And I thought to myself, oh, that's cool and good for her. And I hope that she made money off of that. And that was enjoyable for her. But what interested me most was that your writing is so good that I'm more interested in you more than any of the big names that you have listed on your website. And I thought, thank you. That is so There were so many names listed. And at the end of it, you had like this wonderful blurb you wrote, or I think maybe it's a blog on your, um, on your website. What is your website? What you want to share that with? EliseLunan.com. Yeah. Oh yeah. I started writing. I write, wrote wrote some blogs. But They're gorgeous. (laughs) And I thought I'm interested in reading what she has to say about her. Oh, thank you. Will you. I hope you're not alone. <laughs> I don't think I will be. You've been able to um, really carve out and create a, a beautiful career for yourself um, based you. on, and this is what's so funny to me as like an observer, based on the fact that you say you're not a writer, but you are very clearly a very strong writer. <laughs> I know. It's just one of the, I, uh, I'm sure other people who are listening can relate to feeling like whatever you want to do, even if, even if it comes easily, sort of that presumption of like, can I, can I hang, you know? Um, and it's scary. It's part of what I'm writing about in, in some part is just like picking up those mantles and, um, stepping into our gifts, which are completely specific and unique to each of us. Um, but I think we get caught in these minds where we, we pre- think as women, I don't know, I can't generalize that I'm going to, I'm going to try. We, we presume that what we're doing is everyone else's dream somehow. And that by taking, by doing it, 
and taking up that space, you know, we operate in the scarcity mentality that by operating in that space, somehow we're depriving someone else of their dream, which is silly and certainly does not confine men. Um, and so I think part of, as we continue to evolve past the patriarchy into something that's more equitable and, and better, um, it will require all of us listening to that internal call and moving forward into whatever that expression is. And for many people, it's like, they would never want to write a book. You know, they're, they're, they're expressing themselves in completely different ways. But I think it felt presumptuous or like I was taking up space that I didn't deserve or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I'm still working out, working out. It is so important for me on this particular, on my podcast on the Mothers of Reinvention, it's so important for me to have women such as yourself and have our other guests who have carved out their own path outside of what has been essentially expected of us let's say from the patriarchy mm-hmm. or just from society, what has been expected of us and how we have said, nope, I think I'm going to go in this direction. That's why um, for me, it's important to note, like there's room for all of us. There's so there's room for everything. Having our space or our voice is just lending to the larger, beautiful, bright collective. Um and how important it is to, like, when you say, when you hear the call, go with that call. Go with it because it mm-hmm. lends itself to all of us um, just strengthening our voices and unifying more and also just, like, crashing through those sort of, like, boxes and doors that have been set up before us. Um, yeah. And I think we get tripped up, too, um, in this idea of, like, of effort. And as my... Um, friend Jennifer Rudolph Walsh is one of my mentors says like try easier and also in terms of that call um Priya Parker I don't know if you know know her but she wrote yeah yeah so she wrote the art of gathering and she's such a wonderful person and thinker and she knows really obviously knows how to bring people together and set intentions and um navigate conflicts host hard conversations etc but she also does a lot of consulting and she tells a story about working with a coach who was helping a bunch of women as they were putting together sort of their menu of offerings and, and how they think about crafting proposals. And, and the person, the coach was like, so what's this that you're charging very little for? And she was like, oh, that's just like what I do. That's like so easy for me. And the coach was like, that's what you charge the most for. Like, it is your gift. That is your gift. And I think so many of us have this idea of like, that that's not enough. We have to go and develop ourselves with all of these other superhuman strengths and invest ourselves in things that are difficult for us. Like we need to overcome it instead of recognizing like, oh, that's where I flow. That's where I should go. I didn't mean to just run, but we'll go with it. Um, That will be be the quote on your social artwork that we share for this episode. (laughs) Great. That's where we flow. That's where we should go. But it is, it's like, we, we, we've lost, we, we've stopped listening to sort of that, those inner gifts. And I think feel this compulsion to develop every other part of us instead. And not that we can't, but it's important to remember what 
what does come out of us with so much ease. So I, so you're creating magic right now. I would love to know, I'm sure listeners would love to know, can you identify that one moment where after this amazing career that you've had, you shifted in your head to say, I'm going to focus on me now and build my own, are we calling it a brand? What are we calling it? Because you're about to come out with basically a brand, yes? I feel like I want new language. Yes, I, I don't know what it is. Brand, platform. Yes, platform. It's like, I'm, yeah, but like, yeah, but it's like, what, what's, what's the, what's the better language? I don't know. I have to think about that. But, you know, I had a fresh, was involved doing a ghostwriting project on the side, which I'd always done while having a full-time job. And it was very frustrating. And my agent was like, again, I ask you, like, why are you not just writing your own book? And then I had sort of a series of, um, I was doing, when I was still co-hosting the Good Podcast, I'd interviewed, um, Laura, I had sort of a series of conversations that really like just one single moment that struck me. And um, Lori Gottlieb, who's a psychotherapist and wrote this book, Maybe You Should Talk to Someone, which is a wonderful book. And she has sort of a throwaway comment in there. Um, but we talked about it where she says something to the extent of, I always tell clients to pay attention to their envy because it shows you what you want. And it's like, oh, that's so interesting. And then we talked about it. I was like, is that gendered? And she was like, yeah, I mean, it's typically much harder for women because we have so much shame about feelings and emotions that um, we think are bad. And then a couple months later, I was interviewing Glennon Doyle before um, Untamed came out. And um, I said, we were talking about envy. I can't remember if she writes about it or we were just talking about it, but um, I, I brought up that Lori Gottlieb quote and she was like, you know, what's so interesting about women is that we don't even, we can't even acknowledge what we want based on that envy, like envy showing what you want. We can't, we can't figure out what we want because we haven't even sort of considered that we have wants. Like we don't even know what those wants are. Um, so anyway, I was thinking about this and I was like, this feels really significant and it feels sort of resonant with myself in terms of like going after what I want or even actually being able to identify it because I think I've danced around it for decades, been ashamed about wanting something bigger for myself or, or something that feels truer or um, to not stand behind other people, which has been my inclination. And so I was talking to my brother who's a book editor and I was like, maybe I need to write a book about envy. And he's like, nobody wants to cultivate more envy in their lives, but there's a, there is an idea there. And sort of that's how I ended up sort of with my book concept. And I, when I went to write my proposal, I mean, I spent a lot of time on it more. I, my edit, my agent edited me more exhaustively than I've ever been edited in my life, which was amazing. Um, we did seven rounds on my proposal, but that first draft, it was just like shot out of me and it's essentially what it became. We just finessed and finessed and tightened and sharpened. Um, and I was like, okay, this is it. Like, this is, this is easy for me. Um, and I write well enough, but my real skill is synthesizing information and synthesizing, um, 
books, people, you know, the information that's so abundant around us and that's overwhelming when it's not structured. You know? What for people who are interested in writing a book, in putting together a proposal, what does that process look like or what did it look like for you? Where did you write? In your garden? Yeah. In your where were you inspired? How long did it take <laughs> you? Um, this agent you had, how helpful were they in regards to notes and whatnot? Yeah. So my agent is amazing. Most this we so give this is a shout out. We keep on calling the person the agent. Yes, Jen Joel. Jen Hi, Joel Jen. at ICM. Hi, Jen. <laughs> she's amazing. She is. We are so different, and she's exactly what I need. Um, so fiction is different, and I can't really speak to that process because typically you write the whole book and then you sell it. For nonfiction, you work off of a proposal, and a lot of some people get to skip the proposal stage. Um, and there are some tedious aspects of it. That said, the essential nature of the proposal needs to be addressed, whether you're skipping, going, rushing straight to a book deal or not, because it's like, it's in some ways the hardest part. It's the structure, it's the outline, not that things can't change, but it's the bigger, it's the bigger concept that will keep you on track. And without one, you're sort of shooting in the dark. Some things are abundantly clear, memoir or, you know, things that have an inherent sort of timeline or structure. But if you're working on an idea, it's worth doing the proposal. So a typical proposal would have sort of an introduction, detailed outline, and then a sample chapter and marketing and how you're going to promote the book and who you know, and you sort of like how you can guarantee that someone's going to be interested in this, um, which is, it depends on the quality of the idea. Obviously some people write breakout books without having much of a following at all. Some people they're really relying, you know, if it's a, if it's a memoir about a celebrity, they're really relying on that person's built-in following. I did my proposal a little differently in part because I've written so many books. So there was also the, when I was shopping it and pitching it, the editors that I um, was talking to, I hadn't worked with any of them previously on other books, but they knew that I knew how to write a book um, tactically. And um, so, but so what, what I did was I sort of almost wrote a letter. So I just wrote a long letter about why I wanted to write this book and the idea of it and the genesis of it culturally then I did uh, like a page per chapter, just breaking it down, but nothing too extensive and then sort of like tacked on some marketing. Um, so I kind of broke the mold a little bit, but I actually think that that can be an easier way to start for someone who wants to write a proposal. You can always craft it back into a traditional proposal shape. Um, but you really want to capture, you want to capture the editor, the editors that you're pitching it to. You want to capture their attention. You want them to fall in love with your voice. You want to impress them with the, sort of the originality of your idea, even if it's built on the backs of other thinkers. And, um, and then the process with an agent, I've never worked without an agent. I did my first ghostwriting jobs without an agent, but then it's great. Like they have, they have lawyers, they have, they do all your contracts, they chase money. They, um, do find some deals for you. Um, they're just, 
this great sounding board. If you're trying to construct this as a career, then there also can be highly strategic. Um, and for me, because I tend to be slightly boundary less, like Jen is great, uh, protective moat for me in terms of being like, no, you're not going to do that for free or, um, no, they cannot have that. So I tend to be like, you can have whatever you want. Do you want my children and my cat? Um, and, and so then, so I started working on my proposal. I started like, got out my open the word document in February. And then I started shopping it in July. I want to say, um, July, August. And it went pretty fast. So essentially like you'll, your agent will come up with sort of like the, the list of primary targets where the people who would be interested in your vision, um, then it goes out and depending, they, there's some time pressure. Um, then you meet with all of the interested editors about your vision, their vision, their reactions, to the proposal, and then they move into bids and then you pick if you're lucky and, um, and then you're, then you sort of figure it out, start working. And I've had like a year or so to write my book. Um, I have, I'm starting on the second draft now, and then, and then it takes a year for it to come out. It's an incredibly mm. long process. So you really need to love the subject matter too, because like, you're not, you're with it, you know, then you're promoting it. Then you're promoting the paperback a year later. Um, so you need to, it needs to be something that you want to talk about. When can we expect yours to be out? October, 2022. Do you have a, do you have a title that you could share? I shocked it as when we stop being good, but I don't know if that's the title, but it's about women and the patriarchy and what we police in ourselves and then in each other. So the way that sort of our disturbance by other women's behavior comes out as like a dislike of the person. So it's sort of that, I don't like her. Like you heard this a lot in with Hillary Clinton, for example, I just don't like her. I don't like her. And, and that's complicated. And Hillary Clinton is a complicated woman, but it's very rarely did you hear anything specific. Like, I don't like her. Sometimes it was like, you know, she and Bill did a lot to put black men in jail. You know, sometimes you would hear that level of specificity, but typically not. It was just an aversion. And I think for women, a lot of that came from how dare she. I would never give my permission myself permission to do something like that. So how dare she? From and that's worth excavating. From the research that you've been doing and the writing you've been doing. Uh, and you're sharing now with Hillary Clinton, is there another example of a woman who you've seen persevere and rise to the occasion mm. of just sort of stepping out into her shine and light and, you know, knocking off mm -hmm. all of what anyone has ever said about her? Yeah. I mean, any woman in the public eye has had to more or less prevail against all of the people who have wanted her to shut up and sit down. So, um, you know, it's like the card. I mean, anyone, any woman is like, is doing this because I don't really, and, and, and some women, um, 
it's like they're, they might be at the very beginning of their journey when they're revered and loved and they haven't yet sort of gotten the smackdown that inherently comes when they are perceived to be sort of like too big for their britches or they've been loved for too long and they need to be put back in their place. Well, um, this is what we're seeing a bit with so, Chrissy Teigen. Oh, yeah. She made a comment that totally. is obviously needs to be looked at. But however, I mean, the backlash that happened, it was almost as though... It felt medieval as though people wanted to like tear down the queen. It's wild. And we're seeing this. I mean, it's happening again and again. And and it goes to sort of like, I think feelings of jealousy, um, feelings of um, sort of where we're at culturally right now, which is in a strange place. Um, And we've, we've always had this strange you know it's like anytime there's an election it's and yes we should look at people's voting records it's it's useful information but we refuse to believe that people evolve or change and i read her apology and it was like you know i've done years of therapy 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 more therapy like i was a miserable person i am a better person i am still i not i can't quote it but essentially she was pointing to the fact that like that we evolve and change and now that we have this the history of the internet to sort of, it's very strange behavior. I am not perfect. I don't profess to be perfect. I don't know anyone who professes to be perfect. I also don't, I think it's one thing to call out someone who has been the morality police. Like then the hypocrisy is certainly worth highlighting. Right. Um, But our desire to sort of pull down anyone, chop off any tall poppy, really is something that we need to look at because there are not that many women who have prevailed or succeeded. And then our fervor, the fervor that we bring to destroying them is not helping us make more space for women or making it seem safe for other women to even want to be in the public eye. Like, who wants that? You know, I've thought a lot about it because as I launched this book, et cetera, I mean, Chrissy Teigen, it's a totally different level, but it's like, what? Do I really want people to even know who I am? Because this is such a strange world, you know, like everyone, just not everyone, I'm generalizing, (laughs) but certainly online and in comments, so many people have so much to say. And if I may, I mean, I know that you know this, you were on television yourself um, and have, you know, been on the podcasts host hosting yourself, but I had been on television myself um, on air as like talent for, I want to say 10 years. Um, It was on E and the style network and home shopping network. And it was through the lens of fashion and specifically like shopping and trends um, in the, early to aughts and then throughout that to like 2009. And I had always been super self-conscious about my weight and my height because I'm, sh- I'm short, I'm five feet tall and I'm, and I'm curvy. I'm a curvy, I'm a curvy girl. And on television, people really, um, I don't know if you experienced this, were so mean about what I quote unquote looked like. And even though I was a, let's say, size six or a size eight, 
Um, and I don't even, who cares anymore? This is going back 10 years when it mattered, you know, what size jeans we had on, I guess. Um, it still matters. We are so not past that. Yeah, no. Okay. I mean, I feel like it's 44. I don't give a fuck. I don't care either, but I think we're, we're not I, was, it yet. I feel like, um, mm-mm. I really love how there's like size inclusivity now and how we're normalizing yeah. bodies. Um, however, back then it was brutal to like read about myself and read how often it was so much more mean than it was supportive. Um, and as yeah. your book is saying, like, that's generally like where we're at in the world and this weird culture of how it, how something inside of us drives us to put a mean comment about someone down and have that become a fever pitch of sorts. So did you experience that all, at, at, that at all when you were on television? It's interesting. I think, I think there are a couple of things in what you said. I, I, I don't, I didn't dig deep into the comment section. So I just want to preface it. I that. didn't either. The most I, don't that I, I was get. so reliant on it, but it was yeah. so prevalent and so out there that it was yeah. there. Yeah. I made the mistake of reading podcast comments once and then I was like, okay, I'm done. Um, but most of the comments that come about my appearance are like, who's the man? And, you know, like, what? You know, calling me a, like, oh, she looks like a dyke or, you know, really offensive things like that. Not, I have no problem looking like a lesbian, but I don't like the word dyke used as an mm-hmm. insult. Um, so just the fact that I have short hair and I don't look like hyper feminine. So there's stuff like that on the Goop podcast. I got a lot of love and support, but there were certainly people who hated Goop. Or were disappointed that I that that I hosted more episodes than Gwyneth, or um, you know, it's a, it's one of those things. Like I now make myself read all of the comments, and then I have to take them all in. If I'm going to take the negative, then I also have to take in the positive. It's much harder to take in the positive, um, and you know, you'll you'll get like five negative comments and fifty positive comments, but then you're sort of fixated on the person who tells you that your voice sucks and you're too prepared for interviews. And then the next person is like, she's not prepared. And I mean, it's, it's nonsensical. You just, you can't, can't pay attention. But I also think that like, if you were to do it now, we're protected by age because not only because we've seen it, but because there's something about being an older a woman who's not young and quote unquote, um, ambitious or craving or wanting attention that, um, I think brings on extra fervor in, in hate, um, as like, as 40, 40 year old, 40 something moms were already kind of invisible and irrelevant to a lot of people. And so it's less, um, there's less to comment on. If that makes sense. That's I know Chrissy why, Teigen's a mom too. That's but. why we up here above 40 as moms really can have the conversation together. And that's why I love having this conversation because it's simpatico and we're going through it. And it's important for us to still be seen and heard, not in a thirsty way, but because yeah. we are human and need to share and connect. 
and you don't have any wisdom. I mean, that's the other reason it's like, I'm 41. I'm writing the first book with my, I, and I was sort of going back through my book and thinking about this. And I'm like, I didn't, I had no right. I had no, I mean, Godspeed to the young writers. We need your voices too. But like, I didn't know anything. Um, and so to, and I'm still learning. So I do think, and, and this is one of the things that I've been obsessed with in the last six months is like this idea of like kicking the crone out of conversation, which is what we've culturally done. And we're so scared of sort of that, the end of the cycle, like the death and destruction and being past sort of our um, physical prime, sexual prime um, and what that means that like, we just have no reverence for, for older women in our culture. And they're the ones who have all of the wisdom, all of the ability to initiate younger people. Um, so I'm obsessed with the crone, like bringing back the crone and finding reverence. I mean, we're not crones yet. We're mothers, but it's, it's virgin mother crone. That's the, the triad, but, um, my, it's, it's, my understanding, it's funny because I have a friend who has decided to become a witch. She's really identifying yeah. as a witch. She uh, has her own lifestyle brand, you know, multi-million dollar lifestyle brand. She's an incredible mother. She has two children. When I had my son, which was six years ago, she was like my mothering coach, essentially. She's one of my closest and dearest. And she's decided to do this witch work, which has been so transformative for her. And she's kind of building out this platform, really for her friends, nothing more. But um, this maiden to mother, like, are we in maiden or are we in mother? Do I need to put my tits out to feel good about myself? Or like, am I the mother who has the right. wisdom, who is here to be the feminine divine? And for me personally, even, you know, a little older than you, I struggle with being like, but I used to be so young and cute and I used to be relevant in some way. And right. I, I want, I want to smack that. There's this movie coming out right now, Luca, where the, did you see the previews for the Disney movie, Luca? Yeah, I haven't seen you it yet. You should yeah. watch it. So there's this one cute part of the trailer where the boy says, you know, when I have a voice in my head, I named him Bruno and I say, Silencio Bruno. So I want to say Silencio Bruno to that maiden voice um, who's judging myself um, rather than revering myself or revering my mother or revering older women who have so much wisdom and strength and resilience and beauty. And like, that's where the, the, the meat is for all of us. Yeah. Women that, you know, lift as we rise. Let's like listen to what they are saying so that it can, you know, become a part of us. Again, with this, this podcast, it's important that like we're having these conversations so that the younger women, let's say the 23 year old, the 35 year old, the who is deciding, do I have the family or do the career? What do I do with a career? How do I live my life if the patriarchy says this? It's so important to hear our conversations as mothers and maybe even some guests who are crones to give voice and like normalize and give permission to people, to young young women to decide whatever they want as they, you know, yeah. enter life. Yeah. And to have more models of you know, when you think about the planet and you think about where we're at culturally, like we're so fixated on like the upward curve and more and more and more and more and 
spending our time fighting aging and fighting sort of the accumulation of wisdom and years under our belts and denying our age and experience. And also the inevitability of sort of the fall of the return of the cycle of decay and decomposing and like this return back into the cycle. This is, these are the seasons we cycle with the moon as women. And yet we sort of want to forget that um, or pretend like we can um, live in opposition to that. And I think that refinding the crone and bringing that back in so that we, we allow, like we allow ourselves to go back into nature. Remember that we're not distinct from it. We're a part of it. Um, culturally and environmentally, all the ways we would be so much better off for it. Yes. Agreed. Agreed. Well, I loved having this conversation with you. I'm sure so many people this was fun. loved hearing this conversation. You have so much coming up ahead. Do you want to share a little bit about that? You are reinventing, Mama. Tell us a little bit about that. Okay, yes. So I, so as mentioned, my book won't be out for another year, but I'll be back with the podcast of my own this fall. Even name. Um the thread or pulling the thread um, still going back and forth on it. It will be, it will be with Caden 13 on that network and it will be similar to the conversations that I had on the Goop podcast, similar types of people, um, experts, doctors, healers, professors, thinkers, just uh, lots of authors in that mix, just because they're the ones who have really sort of put thought around a single subject um, and 45 minutes and 45 minutes or so conversation. And, you know, I want, I want to have conversations that hopefully turn on light bulbs are resonant, maybe reframe the way people have been thinking about something. Um, and I also feel like I, I did a lot of hard conversations on the Goop podcast and I'll continue to do that. But I also feel like we're all really tired and sad. And I, I want it. I'm hoping that the overwhelming note is also of joy um, and communion and not, there will be hard moments, but that really it's about, it's about some of the happier emotions too. Well, I very much look forward to hearing that and seeing more of you and seeing you, seeing you, just seeing you. Oh, thank you. Um, if you could synchronize our conversation, what, what would that, what would say? <laughs> what's the chain? What's the main Rodeo queens. <laughs> rodeo rodeo queens. queens. Barrel racing rodeo queens. Is there a way we say goodbye in Montana? Is there like a proper goodbye? Mm. Until next time, cowboy, or I don't know. No, I don't know. I need to come up with that. Well, thank you for your time today. I look forward to listening to your pod, reading the book. So for more info on Elise, please visit her at EliseLunin.com. Her info is on the show page. And if you enjoyed today's show, be sure to like, subscribe, and leave your rebel stories of reinvention for me at TheMothersOfReinvention.com. I'm Jess Zeno, and this is The Mothers of Reinvention. What did you say goodbye in Montana was? I don't know. See you next, See you time. next time. Until next Until time. Until next time. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Uh-huh.